This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I love what you're wearing today. Thank you very much. I decided to dress for the episode. My <laughs> shirt says, I like murder shows, comfy clothes, and maybe three people. You're one of my three people, Candy. Thank you, Ashley. You're one of mine as well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I love it. Well, the shirt is perfect because today we are talking about the true crimes that were the inspiration for the characters of Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly from the Broadway hit and also a movie now, Chicago. Yes. Yeah. So tell me, Ashley, what was your first experience either seeing the play or the movie, whatever it might have been? Well, I saw actually both back in like 2002 when the movie came out. I remember seeing the movie and I also remember that it was the movie that kickstarted the renaissance of movie musicals because Mm. before that, I think the biggest movie musical had been, uh, I don't know, like Grease or something like that. And they'd gone through a really dark period and this is just what revitalized it. And then a local community theater in Louisville did a production and so I got to see the stage version shortly after that. I was kind of immersed back in 2002 around age 22 with this show and I thought it was terrific and I love the themes of it and I hadn't really seen it since we did our rewatch for this podcast which Mm -hmm. I gotta say not great people (laughs) they're just (laughs) not not, so great are they not great people (laughs) but I also came to that conclusion after reading the book that my my mom found this book and gave it to me I read it gave it to Candy and it is called The Girls of Murder City by Douglas Perry and we thought it would be an amazing episode Mm -hmm. so after reading the book and then rewatching the show I was like "Mm, yeah it was a whole lot different when I thought it was just fiction (laughs) (laughs) these are real girls I was like "Mm, these gals and also I should have known better I named my cat Roxy one of my cats is yeah. her name's Roxy oh, Hart based on because she's got a heart on her side okay I should have known she is rotten just <laughs> like Roxy Hart I should have known what I was doing yeah yeah I'm glad you started with the book because huge shout out we did use other sources as well but a lot of information mm-hmm. was pulled directly from Douglas Perry's work so I'm glad that you did that right off the top mm-hmm. I haven't actually ever seen the stage version okay. of Chicago I have only seen the movie. Okay. And I remember when it came out being so impressed mm-hmm. by it. It was mm-hmm. innovative to me, very different. Mm-hmm. It was unique in the way that they brought in all those little, I guess you would call them kind of vaudeville numbers. Yeah. 
Cell Block Tango. Yes. Everybody Ooh, knows that one. Yes. Do you remember that meme from Arrested Development where the mother is sitting there and it's, it's the saying is me when I listen to Cell Block Tango for the next seven minutes and it's, it's the mother and she's like, good for her. <laughs> That's what she's saying. <laughs> if I could find that meme, I'll post it. It's so funny. That's awesome. I love the movie so much that I actually remember that I purchased the soundtrack. And Did I, you? Okay. Yes. And I listened to it because the other one that I loved was They Both Reach for the Gun. Mm, I thought that that's was- my favorite favorite genius i love the way they did it the puppets Mm -hmm. perfect yeah well we're going to get into a lot more about the play and the movie in part two actually guys telling you right off the bat this one's going to be a two-parter because there's so much good stuff here to talk about so this first episode this part one is really going to focus directly in on the true crime the true crime yeah guess what you're probably going to get another this episode is not intended for all listening audiences (laughs) or something like that (laughs) definitely definitely in case there's anyone out there who has not seen the play or the movie here is a little summary from broadway world Set amidst the razzle-dazzle decadence of the 1920s, Chicago is the story of Roxy Hart, a housewife and nightclub dancer who murders her on-the-side lover after he threatens to walk out on her. Desperate to avoid conviction, she dupes the public, the media, and her rival cellmate, Velma Kelly, by hiring Chicago's slickest criminal lawyer to transform her malicious crime into a barrage of sensational headlines, the likes of which might just as easily be ripped from today's tabloids. Ooh, yeah. Interesting. Well, and I thought that was so interesting that Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of research just on the more recent versions of the play. Did you Mm -hmm. know that Pamela Anderson? I did. Yes. I saw on a short, I saw her taking her bow. I didn't Mm -hmm. see her performing, but I've heard some people said that she's done a lovely job. Yeah. She's already finished. I believe she she was there just something like six or eight weeks. And this was very recent, but she had a quote that is reminiscent of what we just read here. She said, it's based on a true story, a journalist that sensationalizes things so much you made them fall in love with the character even if she committed a murder so yes media is very powerful it can be used for good or be used as a weapon the story is as relevant now as much as it was then and that means even more coming from her because of that film that just came out about a very vulnerable time in her life Mm -hmm. where that tape got exposed and she had to go through all of that and they made the film without her permission right so you know that that means a lot more coming from her i think I liked starting with that because even though we're going to kind of get into the true crime, I think it's a nice way to frame this, that this play and the movie that then ends up coming out later, they're not really just about true crime. Oh, no. They they have a much broader theme. Yes. There's kind of a, a social message here. Yes. And so I wanted to kind of start with that, but then we're going to go ahead and jump right into Let's the... Let's do it. Okay. So... Here's the setting. 1924, which is nearly 100 years ago. Almost 100 years ago. 98 years ago today, folks. And we were in Chicago is where this takes place. Douglas Perry does a beautiful job of describing what it was like. What you know what it was like? It was like people were murdering each other all the dang time. That's, That's what it was like. Yeah. I remember reading this and being like, guys, stop. Stop <laughs> killing each other. They were just killing each other just willy-nilly. That's my paraphrase of what you're gonna say. Well, and what adds to it is you not only had the gangsters, mm-hmm. but Yes, no, I just mean women were just killing men all the time. Just killing well, them. Well, th- yes, absolutely. We had murderous row. We're gonna get to that mm-hmm. in a second. But just in general, yeah. they said that Chicago was a place of extremes. That's how Douglas Perry put it. He said, you had prohibition, but then everybody was rebelling against prohibition. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like 
his quote was, it was almost as though the city reveled in its contempt of the law. Mm. You had gangsters. You had speakeasies. You had feminism. These mm-hmm. women were bobbing their hair. They were putting their dresses up above mm-hmm. their knees. They mm-hmm. were going out and they were drinking Dancing. and partying mm-hmm. alongside the men who were doing the same thing. And so you had a lot of illegal activities. And as you said, it seemed like everybody had a gun. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did. There was that scene in Maverick, the movie, the, the movie with Mel Gibson and James Garner and the <laughs> James Coburn has this line toward the end. He's like, everybody has a gun because they're supposed to come to the yeah. come to the game and no one's supposed to have a weapon. And then, of course, something breaks out and everybody pulls out their gun. He's like, everybody's got a gun. That's what it was like in Chicago. It seemed like it. Here's one more little quote from the book. Respectable saloons before prohibition didn't admit women. Speakeasies welcomed them. Skirts appeared to be higher here than anywhere else. Even Oak Park high school girls brazenly petted with boys, forcing the wealthy suburbs police superintendent to threaten to arrest the parents of baby vamps whoa like this was what society was <laughs> like you had all these concerned parents and people yeah. who were kind of i guess in the i don't know middle class or the mm-hmm. more conservative group and in the midst of that as ashley's already said you had murderous row do you mm-hmm. want to tell them what you remember about that uh in reality or from the movie oh gosh it's been a while since i've read the book but i just remember there were so many women on murderous row where they were they were just killing their partners or their husbands or mm-hmm. just it just seemed like there was this epidemic yeah. of it going on in this particular little time frame it may be five or six years right where they were just killing them yeah i don't know exactly what the time frame I don't was either, but you're but right it was, it was, it was a, a t- it was a definite time, frame. time yes and and you nailed it. It said they, they used the term a rash of killings, ah. but I had some statistics I pulled. Okay. The number of killings committed by women had jumped 400% in just 40 years, now making up fully 10% of the total, which oh. of course was super concerning to the people of Chicago. <laughs> like, um, stop. Everybody stop. So you're right. Like it was a 400% increase. That's a lot. That's crazy. When women were responsible for 10% of the murders, uh-huh. like that was very unusual usual for uh-huh. them. Okay, a few other interesting tidbits that came from the book. People at the time thought that violence was an unnatural act for women and that if a woman did something like that, then they thought she would then sink lower and go further in her brutality and cruelty than the other sex, meaning the men would. Mm-hmm. So they thought it was almost as though it was this depravity and if the women went there, then they did it at even a more immoral or deeper level. What are the, So they're saying that they're going to do worse than murder if they murder they're like like the way they do it could be more cruel oh, more heartless like he ran into my knife more 10 brutal. times yeah exactly gotcha. and they thought that violent women might be mentally deceased or defective or just really angry well, and that's the other theory. They also speculated that it was men who had pushed them to behave that way, that men were so brutal and were mm-hmm. using them that it pushed these women to do violent, awful things mm-hmm. that they never would have done. And therefore, because, you know, it was the fault of these predatory men and women were really good at heart, mm-hmm. you had a lot of people like the Sob Sisters mm-hmm. who were out to try to save the women. Mm-hmm. And so Sob Sisters were these newspaper reporters who would over-sentimentalize mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm and really kind of play on all the emotions to try to, number one, teach the women who were reading about the bad girls, yeah. you know, don't do this, don't right. go that way, or to try to work towards converting or bringing back these girls who had gone astray. In Cell Block Tango, the one who said, I told him not to pop his gum, Brian was like, 
she killed him just he popped his gum i said well she said not to she said i, I kept telling him you do that one more time and he did it one more time i mean what else does he want so and brian scooched away yeah. from me on the sofa yeah. and of course i'm teasing but I, you yeah. know she did say do it one more time see what happens i love it well one last little piece of context was that the juries in cook county where all this was going on were very forgiving of women defendants especially if there was any hint a physical or emotional But weren't they abuse. all men juries? They were. Mm-hmm. All male juries. And the other thing is that women who were pretty mm-hmm. tended to get away with it. Yes. Yes. So in the midst of this backdrop, we bring Belva Bell Gartner. Mm. Okay. Now in the movie or the play, if you've seen either one, she's the character on whom Velma Kelly is based. Yes. All right. Here's what happened. On Wednesday, March 12th, 1924, sometime between 2 and 3 a.m., Belva, who was a twice-divorced socialite and a former cabaret dancer, was standing naked in the apartment that she shared with her mother. Her mom was tucked away in a bedroom. She had a blood-soaked coat, dress, shoes, and hat that were all spread out on the floor in front of her. And then there was a knock on the door. She put on a robe and she opened the door to find two policemen. They made the note in the book that her watch face was shattered and the time had stopped at 1.15. I'm always fascinated by that. Why did the time always stop? No, that's a good point because the watch face has nothing to do with that. Right. Mm. No. Good point. So the officers shared that there was a dead man Mm -hmm. sitting in her car, which was a new Nash sedan that her wealthy ex-husband had bought for her. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about him for just a second. Her wealthy ex-husband was William Gartner. Do you remember about William? Anything you wanted to share? Just that he was super wealthy and that he loved her and supported her long past when he should have. Absolutely. Yeah. He was quite a bit older. He was a millionaire scientist and a businessman who actually wanted to marry her again. Despite the fact. No, honey. Oh, what she had done to him. I know. Let's talk about this for just a second. Okay. He was her second marriage and she was cheating on him. He hired a detective. They caught her in the act and she was so brazen and so mm-hmm. bold that she hired a detective. He hired more detectives. <laughs> she, had, They ended up with something like eight detectives. No, tracking each other. Tracking her. <laughs> she, she made friends with them no. because she's wanting to win it's this paparazzi. divorce settlement. Yeah. yeah. And so, and she wants the attention. Like she, she was mm. all over the press. Mm. She loved it. She said awful things about him. Ultimately, she did kind of back down at the last second. I imagine. Mm-hmm. And they had the divorce. And now he is trying to win her back by buying her gift after gift after gift. He needs to listen to our episode on gaslighting. He does. He does. I want to say, sweetheart, sit down here. Let me talk to you. (laughs) Well, they were so chummy at this point that she would actually call him every day now. The ex. The ex Mm -hmm. and check in with him. I believe when she heard the knock, she might have even thought maybe this was her ex. I can't recall. But so basically, remember, these officers are at the door asking her about a dead man who's in the car that her ex-husband had bought her. Okay. Now, the officers share with her that this man, who, by the way, is the automobile salesman who had sold her the sedan, Mm. not only that he's dead in the car, but that she had been seen leaving the car and returning to it. They asked if she had a gun, Mm -hmm. and she explained that she always carried one. Mm -hmm. It was another gift from William. (laughs) And it's Chicago, after all. (laughs) That's right. And they asked if she had gone to her apartment to get it, and at first she said no, but then she corrected it and said, I don't know, I was drunk. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. 
Now, she ends up at the police station. They continue to question her. She's still intoxicated. Mm -hmm. She had been drinking quite a bit. She is still wearing a blood-stained robe or slip, depending on the source. Mm -hmm. And her story is slowly emerging. Okay? So here's, here's what comes out. She's 38. She's about 10 years older than the man who has been shot, Walter Law. And the two had been seeing each other a few times every week for about three months. Mm -hmm. Sounds as though they met through that whole car car, mm-hmm, car experience when she bought that from him. She said his wife didn't seem to mind. Oh, yeah. well, that's good. Yeah. Well, that's kind. She got a, she got a permission slip from the missus. <laughs> so she shares that this particular evening, she recalled that they had been fighting on their way home after hours of drinking together, strong bootleg liquor oh, that might have been tainted. You're not <laughs> sure. And also enjoying some, some music at the, the Gingham Inn. Oh, gosh. Yeah. How old is she? 38? She's 38. I'm 42. I can't even stay up past 10. So <laughs> this woman, I don't know. Well, you know, if you're dancing. And, I guess. And, you know, maybe that helps keep you awake. I don't know. Well, she remembered telling Walter that she was worried about their safety. Specifically, she was very concerned about gangsters because mm, it was so late and it was course. so dark. Yeah, those and, pirate gangsters waiting in the wings, the shadows. Yeah. And remember, she usually had her gun on her because mm-hmm. she wanted to protect herself from mm-hmm. gangs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, she also recalls in her interrogations with the police announcing to Walter that she was a better shooter than he was, mm. to which he disagreed. Mm-hmm. And then she recalled... She's like, here, wait, <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> well, you're Go. not too far wrong, Put actually. this apple on your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, she recalled his saying, I'm a wonderful marksman. I never miss. She told the policeman that she jokingly suggested they toss a queen and the winner would get to shoot the loser. If the winner missed, then that person would get a chance to shoot and so on until one of them was shot. Oh, well, she said, hold my beer. You're a great marksman. Hold my beer. Hold my tainted beer and I'll show you who's a great marksman. So she continued, quote, there were nine bullets in the pistol and then, oh, I don't know just what did happen. I was too drunk. But she remembered that specific conversation. Well, this is coming out in little spurts. Like, this is through, like, there are parts where she's not remembering anything. And then these pieces okay. are just emerging. Okay, from as her they, imagination. Yes. And, but because of this story, some of the papers referred to her as the flip coin murderess. Ah. Okay. Because one thing we should also point out is that when you are in Chicago and you have been arrested for things, apparently it's kind of fair game for reporters. Oh. They would be around as these arrested people would be brought into the station and they would overhear a lot of the questioning or they could actually go up and they could post Question. questions to to these people and they would often respond because they wanted the press on their side ah. and or they liked the attention. Ah, okay. Okay. And they like giving them cutesy names too. Oh, absolutely. Very cutesy. In fact, one of the points they made was that the name didn't even have to match the person <laughs> or what they had done. Yeah. They just wanted something catchy, catchy, okay. something that would get them press. To move on with this, an officer pressed Belva to try to remember more. She finally comes out with, I remember seeing him collapse over the wheel, but I had no idea what was the matter. I looked at Wally closer and saw blood streaming down his face. I put up my hand to stop the flow, but I couldn't. Walter, Walter, I called, but he did not move or answer me. Then I tried to pull him out of the driver's seat so I could drive the car home, but I couldn't budge him. He was so limp. His head fell on my arms, and that is how my clothing came to be spattered with blood. I became frightened and ran home. 
Obviously, she was arrested, Mm -hmm. and the police later pieced together some of the gaps in her story, basically in her memory of what happened because of the drunkenness, Yes, and evidence that was presented helped to fill those gaps. So a lot of it came together at the inquest, which the way it read sounded as though it was the next day. Okay. In the meantime, before the inquest, her ex, William, had brought her clean clothes and jewelry to the police station, including, I believe, seven rings. So she could have a choice, but okay. she decided to wear them all. Okay. All right. And when William saw her dolled up for yeah. the inquest, he told the reporters, I hope for a reconciliation just as soon as possible. William, darling. I know. And he ends up paying for all the lawyer I know he bills. does. Yeah. I remember that. Mm-hmm. William. Here's the rest of the story. Sometime after midnight, Belva and Walter had parked the Black Nash sedan near her apartment. Belva had left the car, probably to go to her apartment. At about 1 a.m., two beat cops saw a woman open the passenger side door of this car and disappear into the Nash sedan. But they didn't see the car go anywhere. And honestly, prostitution, things oh, okay. in cars. Yeah. So they, they decided this is what that probably was. And they headed to a police call box to notify Vice because Vice was the group gotcha. who handled that. Yeah. So when they were over there trying to make that call, they heard a shot. Ah. They quickly head back to the car where they found, quote, a man shot through the head and no sign of the woman that they had seen. The man's body lay crumpled against the steering wheel, his arm dangling, a trickling bottle of gin just out of reach. There was an automatic pistol on the floor next to it, Mm. end quote. So they identified the man through the info in his wallet, and they realized the car did not belong to him. It belonged to Belva Gartner. And that's what led them to her apartment, where they found her still drunk, pacing the floor with a large bruise on her cheek and all those bloody clothes spread out. Okay. And one of her quotes from that night was, we got drunk and he got killed. I don't know how. (laughs) Girlfriend. I know. And here's where it gets worse for her. More evidence came out against Belva during the inquest that painted a very bad picture. Some of that was from the testimony of one of Walter's co-workers, a man named Paul Goodwin, Mm -hmm. who was another car salesman. And his testimony was... Quote, Walter told me Monday that he planned to take out more life insurance because Mrs. Gartner threatened to kill him. In a joking way, he said he was afraid Mrs. Gartner might shoot him. Three weeks before, he told me she locked him in her flat with her and threatened to stab him with a knife unless he stayed there. Ooh. Mm-hmm. This guy's testimony was so strong, they didn't even have to continue the inquest the next day. It was clear this case was going to move on to the grand jury in a trial. And the lawyer speculated in his summation that when they got back, Belva and Walter, after that night of drinking, he thought what happened was Belva had tried to get Walter to come back into her apartment. The lawyer said he, remembering the time she locked him in and held him there at the point of a knife, refused. Then she pulled the gun, perhaps. He tried to stop her, but couldn't. So that's what they're speculating. Okay. Okay. So a quick note about Walter's widow. He had this lovely wife named Frida, Mm. who was young, Mm -hmm. had a baby boy, Mm. Prior to this inquest where this information had come out, Frida had told the reporters that she did not think Belva had done it. She didn't she even... She didn't? No. I don't remember that. Oh, she was very unaware. She thought he'd been shot by someone outside the car, like the gangsters or, oh, you know, some of this random the violence. The gangsters. Was, mm-hmm. She did not think Belva had done it because when they asked her why her husband was out so late with another woman, her response was, Walter died at his work. 
he had sold Mrs. Gartner that car, and he was demonstrating to her how to drive it. He did that with almost all his customers. Walter was devoted to me. I never suspected him of anything that might give me cause to be jealous, and I don't suspect him now. And then after the inquest, she had totally changed her mind. And she had testimony to the reporters about her hatred for Belva and how she hoped that Belva would get a real punishment, not just a few months in jail and then get to move on with her life. So she's about to be real disappointed. Yeah. On murderous row in the Cook County Jail, Belva was quickly named, nicknamed, the most stylish woman on the cell block. Mm-hmm. Now, do you remember any parts of this that you want to share with us? Um, I remember that she dressed really well. Mm-hmm. I remember that she was not necessarily beautiful of, of form or right. face, but that she had so much style. She commanded this attention. She commanded everyone's respect. And skipping ahead, when I saw the film and I saw Velma Kelly show up, and sit on the stand in the furs and the hats. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's a nod to her. Right. That's because that's what she would wear. She'd wear these furs, these hats, these dripping with jewels. She just always looked beautiful. Yes, absolutely. They talked about that quite a bit in the book, that she was not pretty, mm-hmm. but she commanded respect. Mm-hmm. She was so stylish. She commanded attention. She actually came from some poverty. She was in an orphanage at one point, very poor at one point. She had become a popular cabaret dancer during the war, which, you know, when they talking about the character Belma Kelly in the play and the movie that part is accurate but they changed a lot of mm-hmm. Belma's story in terms of yeah, there modeling was, it after there Bel- was no Belva. sister or exactly yeah. so she left the cabaret to marry William because he was very attracted to her and of course that's where she came into all the money yeah and she was as you said so confident she actually was aggressive and we, we talked about that story of how she handled the divorce with him mm-hmm This confidence helped her attract men. It also carried weight in prison. As soon as she came in, it talked about the fact that even though she was in prison clothes, she wasn't made up. She didn't have all of the things that she normally would have. Immediately, this one inmate who wanted to do her laundry, right? Yes. Thought to to be the toughest girl in the entire section of this women's quarters, immediately deferred to Belva and brought her a bun when she asked for food. And they said that set the tone. All the other girls then were like, okay, we're supposed to respect and kind of wait on this woman or treat her as though she's special. So Belva was smart. She knew how to play the angle. She knew how to work the press. Almost immediately after coming into prison, she knew this was a thing in Chicago. These This whole thing of sob sisters, you know, this idea of women being able to be brought back when they've gone astray. Mm-hmm. She played into that. So the day after the inquest, the Daily Journal reported that Belva had found faith. She started a daily hymn sing that occurred in the recreation room every day after lunch. Yeah. And that she started telling the reporters her faith would see her through. So she was really kind of playing that up. And she got her mom on board. Mom knew how to play into this too because her mother told the reporters that Walter was crazy about her and always after her. He wouldn't let her alone. Mm. So it's all on him. So for a while, Belva was the star. She was the one in Murderous Row that got the attention from the press. She was the one the other girls were deferring to. They would ask her for style tips. I mean, she, she was kind of ruling the roost, if you would. And then all of a sudden, somebody else came along and stole that spotlight, which is the other case that we're going to be talking about. Beulah Annan. And we're going to come back to Beulah in a minute because we're going to talk all through her crime. 
time. Mm -hmm. But just to stick with Belva, what happened was when Beulah came in, this set things back. Beulah was getting the press. Beulah was getting the attention. And this was such a concern for Belva that she would try to get pictures made with Beulah just to steal some of the spotlight. Ah. It affected her trial. Her lawyer saw that so much of the attention had been taken from Belva and moved to this other girl that he pushed Belva's trial back, thinking that that would help her get a better outcome. Which is what happens in the film. Yeah. And the play. So an interesting thing to note is that appearance mattered, like not just to these girls, but it actually made a difference to how they were perceived by the jury, Mm -hmm. how they were perceived. Because it was a jury of all men. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it sounds superficial and silly in some ways for us to be talking about how stylish she was and the fact that other people would go to Belva for tips, but it was very calculated. Yeah. Because it honestly made a difference. There was a reporter named Maureen Watkins that we're going to talk a lot more about in part two. She's one of the few who could see through yes some of i love maureen well tell us briefly uh, why do you like her so much (sighs) why do i like her so much i like her first of all because she's from around our part she's from our neck of the woods our part of the nation and i like that she was able to see through these women i like that she was able to use her gifts she was very very beautiful Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. but she had long hair she dressed in the old-fashioned way and people would look at her and they would trust her Mm-hmm. And because they trusted her, she was able to get a lot of scoops from a lot of criminals or people like that because they would talk to her and feel like the sympathy from her. And she was not all the way sympathetic. She she took a line of, I'm going to expose them. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing this because I'm supporting you. I think you're wrong. And the way I'm going to prove that you're wrong is by exposing who you are. But not everybody got it. Not everybody right. got her what she was trying to do. Yeah, that's a good I like how brave she was to do this. She was and witty and sharp yeah yeah and when she got the job she was terrified but it's what she wanted to do because it's the way she thought she could do some good Mm -hmm. so i like that she did it scared so it was a real thing that the reporters not just the sob sisters even the other reporters who would cover these cases involving these these murderesses they would describe their appearance every day in court it was Mm -hmm. like this was an important thing Mm -hmm. but maureen would slant it so here's an example so while other reporters would be covering the dress from that superficial type stance maureen would sometimes talk about the appearance to bring out how it was being used to manipulate, Mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. it was calculated the way that Belva might stroke her hair or Mm -hmm. or wear a hat a certain Mm -hmm. way, trying to convey some type of emotion Mm -hmm. or get some type of sympathy from Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Like everything mattered. And so she she was very insightful in the way she would talk about it. Maureen had listened to our episode on gaslighting. (laughs) (laughs) Maureen actually, we'll talk more about this later, but she also had a religious background. Mm -hmm. And just to give an example of how she could be kind of hard hitting Mm -hmm. in her reporting and, and basically call things out. Be be pretty blunt. I'll read this little quote from one of her many, many articles on Belva. Okay. The essence of Christianity is to think of other people. That doesn't mean to give an easy break. 
The juryman with his maudlin sentiment may think he's practicing Christianity when he gives an acquittal, and in some instances he may be. But there is just as much Christianity in having your sympathy with the man who was killed and in restraining the individual. So in Belva's case, she suspected that Belva would be acquitted simply because she was a woman Mm -hmm. and she was stylish Mm -hmm. and she was of the upper class and she knew how to manipulate the press. Mm Turns out she was right. She was right. Yeah. Belva Gartner, the most stylish murderess, was indeed acquitted. And when she was interviewed by reporters right afterwards, she immediately announced she was going to remarry Mr. Gartner and forget all of this on a second honeymoon to Europe. Boo. Yeah. That's what I say to that. Literally had blood on her hands. Literally. Right. Blood everywhere. Acquitted. Well, before we talk about Beulah, why don't we take a short break? Let's do it so I can get my griping out. It's time for our July giveaway. For a chance to win your very own Scandal Water t-shirt, simply visit our Scandal Water podcast Facebook page and share the post labeled July Giveaway. The winner will be announced on July 31st. Cheers! And we are back to talk about Beulah Annan, who was the inspiration for the character Roxy Hart. Roxy Hart. So on Thursday, April 3rd, 1924, around noon, 29-year-old Harold Kalstedt showed up at 817 East 46th Street, which was the apartment of Beulah Annan, who Harry referred to by the nickname Anne. The two knew each other through work. They both had jobs at a place called Tenant's Laundry. He was a delivery person. She was an assistant bookkeeper. And they had been seeing each other for a few months now, even though she was married. Mm. She answered the door in basically a slip, which Douglas Perry referred to as a camisole in his book. And Beulah looked gorgeous. She was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. She was described as having a thin, straight nose, high cheekbones, and gorgeous red hair. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because a lot of the sources said she was 23 at the time, but she was born in 1899, and this is 1924. She ought to be 24. I'm not sure, but she's around 23 or 24. Okay. okay. Could have been when her birthday fell. Who knows? Right. Well, Harry told Beulah she looked like she could use a drink, and when she agreed that she could, mm-hmm. he told her he needed money, and this seemed to be a theme it annoyed her a little bit Uh, so he asked her for six dollars and when she said she didn't have that much he said he'd take whatever she had she got him a dollar out of the pocketbook that she kept in her bedroom and he left to go buy some liquor and while she was waiting she put on her favorite song a record called hula loo yes this is also a nod in the film because there's music playing when roxy shoots fred and i really wanted to play a little clip from this but i think we're just like a year or two outside the public domain Uh, okay so we're gonna have to put it in show notes that people need to check this out because this is going to come back again in a minute too so harry came back a little bit later with two quarts of wine and they settled onto the couch to drink and listen to music together but as they were drinking beulah became more and more resentful not only was this guy not spending money on her even though he was always telling her he would he was even asking her for money and so she was just getting more furious as time passed and so she accused him of lying about having money to spend on her and that led her into saying that she suspected that he had other girlfriends that he was spending this money on. So they were starting to fight. And in the midst of this, she suddenly announced that she had another boyfriend just trying to make him angry. So she's married and she says, I have another boyfriend besides you. 
I think the impression here is that Harry didn't feel like she had much affection for her husband. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this did work to make him angry. And he said, quote, if that's the kind of woman you are, and called her a name. And then he told her he was going to quit her. Well, she, this this is escalating. They're Mm. yelling back and forth. And so she's yelling back at him. She gave him a huge insult by calling him a dirty jailbird. Oh. He had spent five years in a Minnesota prison for assault before he came to Chicago to work at his brother-in-law's laundry business. Okay. Okay. Now, this is the way the story's told. So we're going to have a little gap here. About two hours after the fight, at 4.10 p.m., Beulah calls the laundry. The record Hulalu is playing in the background. So she turns it down so she can talk to her boss, the head bookkeeper, which is a woman named Betty Bergman. Mm -hmm. And she asks Betty to put Harry's brother-in-law, Billy, on the phone. Betty tells her Billy's out. Beulah asks is Moo there? Which is her pet name, one of her pet names for Harry. Mm-hmm. Betty says, you know he hasn't been here all day long. And Beulah said, well, that's funny because, you know, she had an appointment with him for 1215 uh-huh. and he hadn't shown up. Uh-huh. They hung up and she continues to dance around the room to the song Hula Lou, starting it again over and, and again over. each mm-hmm. time it stops. Around five o'clock, she calls her husband Al at the garage where he worked and she says, come home. I've shot a man. He's been trying to make love to me. Mm. Beulah told her husband the man had come in and tried to make this pass at her. She had fought him off and shot him with a gun. And then she'd waited a while thinking maybe he was still alive and he would leave. But when he didn't, she eventually called her husband. Al believes his wife's story. He calls the police. Mm. Now he's he's in the apartment with her by now. Yeah. Okay. When the police arrived at the apartment... Hulalu is still playing on the Vitrola. Oh, man. And Beulah is still in her camisole. Yes. They asked where the gun was. Al gave them the revolver. When they asked where it was kept in the apartment, Al told them that they usually kept it in the bureau drawer. Yeah. The dead man was laying on the bedroom floor, blood soaked into the carpet all around him. Al told the officers he was the one who had killed the man. He said, quote, I came home and found this guy going after her. It was me that shot him. But Beulah jumps in here and says, no, I told him I would shoot. He kept coming toward me anyway. So there was nothing else for me to do but shoot him. And one of the officers says, in the back. (laughs) Oh. So. Oh, buddies. Yeah. Douglas Perry's book is so good. It It really is. I mean, you get all the detail. Obviously, we're having to kind of cut this back but Beulah ends up fainting in the middle of this questioning later she's revived she's kind of out of it the assistant state's attorney Roy Woods is there he asks her a few questions and she asks him could he frame it to look like an accident oh Mm -hmm. that's great you don't say that Beulah (laughs) to the prosecutor No. no and he was shocked he decided she must be hysterical, not in her right mind, but still <laughs> he clearly. says, right, still he says, you don't frame anything <laughs> with me. Now, at the police station, we have Maureen, our reporter yes, again. Yes, Maureen. She's there. She overhears Al complaining to the police officers within earshot of her and some other reporters. He's now put things together. I've been a sucker, that's all. Simply a meal ticket. We'd bought our furniture for our little apartment and it was all paid off but $100. I thought she was happy. I didn't know. And a reporter asked Al a question and he said... I guess I was too slow for her. I don't get any kick out of cabarets, dancing, and rotten liquor. I like quiet home life. 
Beulah wanted excitement Aww. all the time. Ow. So then the reporters moved to the room where they hold the female suspects, where Beulah, of course, is sitting. She now has a coat thrown over her, but she's still- And there's a photo. Yes. We can put this in the show. We do have in the show notes, right? There's a yes. photo of her in this coat, in this camisole, given moon pie eyes to the photographer. Absolutely. Yep. She's posing. Posing. And they said that there's at least one shot that was so revealing, the papers had to crop the picture at the collarbone mm. to be able- to run it in Friday's papers. Oh, boy. Yeah. So she stuck to her story of having to shoot the man to save her honor. But later that night, when they took her back to her apartment to let her change clothes and to have her walk through the incident, that's when her story starts to break down. She could not explain the wine bottles and the empty glasses Mm -hmm. or why she had shot him in the back. She also couldn't explain why she had waited hours after the shooting before calling anyone. Mm -hmm. And that's when she admits she had not been telling the truth starts to come out she explained they'd been seeing each other she talked about his visit that afternoon how they'd been drinking she talked about the fight and how after she had jokingly said she was going to quit him he had told her he was through with her and started to put on his coat and she said quote when i saw he meant what he said my mind went into a whirl and i shot him then i started playing the record i was nervous you see i'm gonna pause here and i'm gonna ask you to read this next little chunk okay actually Beulah said she sat next to Harry on the floor and washed his face and kissed him. After the shooting, she became distracted and started to cry. I was afraid the neighbors would hear me, so I put on the record and took Harry in my arms and cried and cried. In time, she was cried out, which led her back to the phonograph. I went to it and started it over again. I couldn't stand the quiet. She danced mindlessly and tried not to cry and didn't look at Harry anymore. After a couple of hours, she realized she had to do something about him, so she decided to call her husband. I kept calling numbers, but I couldn't seem to remember his, she said. A voice over the line, unbidden, told her to try directory assistance. She finally got out on the phone and told him to come home. So... He'd been laying there. Yes. Dying all that time while she was playing that record. Yes. And she waited all that time to call. She waited. I don't buy your story, Beulah. Yeah. Well, they didn't either. They kept questioning her and they they kept taking it back to the fight and the shooting. And so some of the other pieces that came out, she said that after telling him that he was nothing and calling him names, he had jumped up very angry. She said they both looked toward the bedroom and Harry saw Al's gun. He usually kept it under the pillow, but in this case, it was out in plain sight. So Beulah said they both headed that way. They both went for the gun, you mean? Yes, exactly. (laughs) She said she was in the lead and, quote, I grabbed for the gun. And so this was the little exchange in Douglas Perry's book. And what did he grab for? She said, for what was left. Nothing. Did he get his coat and hat? No, he didn't get that far. Why didn't he get that far? Darn good reason. What was it? I shot him. Mm -mm -mm. So this is how she is telling this. Yeah. So the police and the assistant state's attorneys are thrilled. This confession. They got it. Wrap it up. Yes, they called this the midnight confession. Yeah. They had everything. Yeah. Everything they needed. She could not stop talking. They got her back to the police station. And now she keeps talking and telling the police matron, Harry was my greatest love. And rather than see him leave me, I killed him. She cannot stop talking. Right? So they said that part of the reason behind her confession may well have been her emotional turmoil, but another reason may have been that she really wasn't that concerned about the consequences because at the time that Beulah came into that jail, Douglas Perry said in his book, the pretty ones never were convicted. Yeah. Not 
once yep. in Cook County's history. So she's like, I'm pretty. I'll, I'll be able to do this. I can get away with this. Yeah. In an article about Beulah, this reporter, Maureen Watkins of the Chicago Tribune, described her this way. They say she's the prettiest woman ever accused of murder in Chicago. Young, slender, with bobbed auburn hair, wide-set appealing blue eyes, up-tilted nose, translucent skin, faintly, very faintly rouged, an ingenious smile, refined features, intelligent expression, and awfully nice girl, that was a quote, and more than usually pretty. She wore a fawn-colored dress and hose with black shoes, dark brown coat, and brown georgette hat that turned back with a youthful flare. So she was gorgeous Mm -hmm. and... Not only did it have an advantage in terms of the fact that they said beautiful or pretty girls were never convicted in Cook County, it also got her some lawyers Mm. because William Scott Stewart and W.W. O'Brien were law partners who normally would not take a case unless a huge chunk of cash was given up front. But after seeing Beulah's picture in the paper, they decided they would go ahead and take her case. By the way, these two fellas are collapsed into the Billy Flynn character in the play in the movie. They're very different. William Scott Stewart is very serious, wonderful reputation. He's a a prosecutor with a ton of convictions, very devoted family man, dressed for the job very professionally, whereas W.W. O'Brien was a theatrical promoter turned political campaigner turned lawyer who loved the ladies. Oh boy. Yeah. And this is a perfect combo. Yeah. He was fun, flamboyant, always kind of teetering on the edge of scandal himself. (laughs) So the two of them were a perfect Billy Flynn, I think. But they said that they took the case, but of course they they still needed money. They were going to, they needed payment. So of course, Al. Al Al, steps in. Mm -hmm. He immediately worked to set up loans to pay for the lawyers. He told the reporters, I haven't much money, but I'll spend my last dime in helping Beulah. I'll stick to the finish. Wonder why? Because he just said, I'm a sap. I know I'm being played at the police station, but he still decides to pay for her defense. Seeing her, being around her. I guess. He just could not. I do not have the gift of Belva and Mm -hmm. Beulah. I mean... I just don't. Not many women do, I no. don't think. <laughs> Which is probably a good thing. I'm glad, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the people that Al reached out to trying to get some money was Beulah's father, but that was a no-go. So let's talk for just a minute about Beulah's background. She's from here too, right? She was, mm-hmm. yes. She was born Beulah May Sheriff in Owensboro, Kentucky in 1899, and they kept saying that she grew up basically outside Owensboro in a small town, but she wanted bigger things. She was raised Baptist, but at some point she decided she was really no longer interested in church. While still in Kentucky at 16 years of age, she married a newspaper linotype operator at the Owensboro Inquirer. His name was Perry Stevens. After about 18 months, they had a son, but Beulah had an affair, possibly more than one, and her husband told her that even though he loved her, she probably ought to leave because she wasn't going to make a very good mother and it would be better for their son. Ah. And that tracks because in this situation we're now discussing, when she's talking to the reporters, she's telling them that her boy was now seven years old and living with his father's people. She had not seen him since he was a baby. I wonder if they actually divorced. Like, I wonder if her other marriages were even legal. Like, did she divorce the guy back in Kentucky or did she just leave? I think they divorced. Okay. But that's a good question. I didn't actually see that. Yeah. She and Al had met in Louisville, but when she came to Chicago, he followed her and... 
I think it was like two weeks later after she moved and then they were married. So hmm. that's kind of the little backstory. Okay. Now, I think that's another reason Maureen was so mad at her, right? Because they were from around the same area, had the same kind of, I don't, I just remember that she particularly had it out for, not had it out for, rightfully had it out for Beulah. I didn't ever see you that. You didn't? Okay. Maybe up, that's just in my head. But I think Beulah definitely was the more manipulative. Yes. The one who took so much who more used her advantage looks. of, yeah, because it's like we just said, she confessed like like all the evidence was against her and she also straight up told them that I she shot him. did it i shot in him. cold blood yes. and because he threatened to leave her now actually gets worse <laughs> oh, because at the inquest not only do they have that confession that we just discussed but a, another very disturbing i think fact came out they had brought in these experts to kind of trace the timeline. And this one doctor named Dr. Clifford Oliver testified that when he examined Harry at the apartment at 620, Harry had only been dead about half an hour. <gasps> so more than three hours had passed from the time of the shooting to when Beulah finally called her husband. She had been sitting there that entire time drinking, dancing, and listening to music uh, and sometimes stroking his cheek. What the things that she talked about? He'd been dying that whole uh, time. She could have saved his life. Oh no, gosh, that's terrible. Awful, awful. After the inquest, Beulah's now in jail. Her cell number was six fifty seven, and as we've already said, she was immediately dubbed the prettiest murderess in Cook County Jail. The attention was unbelievable. Immediately, newspapers were not just flocking to her; people wanting to take pictures and you know do interviews with her. But they were reframing her story. They were trying to paint her as a sympathetic figure, mm-hmm. this woman who could be saved. She received a red rose from an anonymous admirer. Dozens of love letters from. Men. Someone sent her a meal, a juicy steak, French fried potatoes, and a cucumber salad. And she was... Loved it. Oh, she loved it. She immediately decided that she would probably be able to go to Hollywood and become a star after this. Ah. But she also knew what this could do for her in terms of this trial. I mean, she just, she was smart and manipulative. So she took total advantage of it. She would pose for those pictures. She would do whatever it took to stay in the limelight. Mm -hmm. And of course, this also affected the other girls. This is about the time that Belva has realized that she's losing some of the limelight. Mm -hmm. Right. The other girls are jealous because they openly said this could affect their trials. This could affect what happened with them because of publicity which is crazy. So in the midst of all this attention and fawning, Maureen Watkins was one of the few people, one of the few reporters who was actually viewing everything from a cynical standpoint and with a shrewd eye. And one of the things that she called out, as we've already alluded, was how much appearance did matter. In fact, there was another woman, Sabella Needy, who won a retrial because a young, which was very unusual for the time, female lawyer, Gave her a makeover. Yes, I remember, remember that. that. They wrote a book about her too. I think the author of the book about her read his book, this one right here, and wanted to know about more about her and mm-hmm. went and wrote a book just about that woman. Yeah. That's, fascinating. It is fascinating. I mean, all of this is so disturbing. But, yes. But fascinating. So this 
fueled the fire even more. All of these women on Murderous Row realized we better look better. We we can affect our own outcome by our appearance. And so this is where it ramped up. They basically started going to quote jail school. They would give each other manicures. They would cut each other's hair. They were getting advice from Belva, as we said before. From the book, there was a quote that said, friends and lawyers brought in new outfits for the inmates and the women conducted impromptu fashion shows on the block to choose the best clothing for their trials. And then they study every effect, turn, and change, Maureen Watkins noted in one of her articles. And who can say it's time wasted? Yeah, right. Who can say that? It's not. It's getting results. So about this time, when Beulah's at the height of her popularity, another murderess came into the spotlight, a woman named Wanda Stopa. And we won't go into the details of that, but it was concerning because, again, she couldn't afford to lose her press. Another thing that was disturbing was about this time, they'd had two cases in a row where some women who'd been charged with things were actually starting to get convicted. Yeah. And that concerned them. Yeah. So just like we see in the movie and the play Chicago, Beulah gathered the press together and told everybody she was pregnant. Yes, she sure did. And this is also where she changed the story to say that Harry had attacked her that day because she told him she was pregnant with Al's child. And of course, this was designed to not only get her attention, but also to get her sympathy mm-hmm. and reduce the chances of getting hanged. Because if she's pregnant... She's bought herself at least nine months. Right, right. And the media went right with her. In fact, Douglas Perry, the book's author, commented, it seemed to Maureen Watkins that she was the only one who remembered the ugliness of the killing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I like Maureen, because she sees the truth. She sees what really happened. She's not being pulled along by this wave. Yeah. Well, despite the pregnancy story, despite her beauty, despite the press's fascination and the sympathy that now is surrounding her, Beulah's lawyers still know they had a tough, tough fight ahead of them because she had confessed. (laughs) She had openly admitted to this. So they decided the tact that they were going to take was to portray her as a virtuous working girl, a modest little housewife who had been lured astray by booze. And they also decided now they're going to slant the story again. This time they're going to go for she had shot the intruder in self-defense. They both reach for the gun. They both reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she got on the stand and changed that story to go with the self-defense angle that her lawyers determined. This time, of course, she had shot Harry because he was going to shoot her. And... Of course, the Sunday morning papers came out at the end of the trial announcing the news that Beulah had been declared not guilty on Saturday. She told the reporters, I'm going to be a devoted wife from now on. She went on to say she was going to put these terrible things behind her and focus on being a good mother and a true wife. And by the next afternoon, she was sitting in a newspaper office with a divorce lawyer Mm -hmm. reporting that she was leaving Al. And that's what turned the tide against her, isn't it? It absolutely was. And it should. It should have been turned against her from the start. But yeah, to one day, one day say, I'm going to be the good wife. I'm going to be, do everything the right way. And the next day you're in the The divorce. Next Next day. day. And all of it's so public. Yes. And she told the reporters, he doesn't want me to have a good time. He never wants to go out anywhere and he doesn't know how to dance. I'm not going to waste the rest of my life with him. He's too slow. Well, that's what Al said. He called it. Yeah, he was right. Mm. So that's the true story of what happened with Belva Gartner and 
Beulah Annan. Yes. Now, obviously, next week, we're going to get into the whole, how did Chicago develop out of all this? And also, we're going to talk about where all these people ended up. Like, what happened to them after Did Beulah become a Hollywood actress? Right. Have you ever heard of Beulah? No. (laughs) Armchair psychologist. So that's still coming next week. But for our armchair for today, a simple question. What are your thoughts about these two murders and just the context of what was going on in Chicago at this time. I just, I want to know how, how did this, how do we get two women who fairly well say, yeah, I did it. And Mm -hmm. what of it? And then they got off. Mm -hmm. They were acquitted. And I don't want to sit here. You know, we try to take a compassionate view of people. We try to be nice. We ex- except for Herb Stemple. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know, he's gonna, <laughs> he's on a shelf by himself. But in other cases, if they had been abused, mm-hmm. if they had been, I would, I would turn a sad eye to them and I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, mm-hmm. maybe he did deserve this. These men did not deserve this. Yes, they were engaged in immoral behavior, but that doesn't mean they need to be killed. And the fact that they got away with it just because one of them was pretty and the other one right. was stylish and had good connections. It infuriates me that this happened. And I can I can so sympathize with Marina. I know it's not till next week. I can just feel, I feel like she's a modern woman mm-hmm. in the early 20s going, I cannot believe this. Right. How? And so she gets her revenge through the pen, which we'll talk about later. But it's almost like today, you know, we have so many people today who will get away with crimes just because they're pretty or Mm -hmm. act a certain way just because they're pretty. And people let them do it. It's universal. It's the way it was 100 years ago is still the way it is now. And I guess that's why it's so fascinating. And still relevant. Yes. Yeah, my brain is stuck in, in the idea that you just brought up, which is how media and public opinion carries so much more weight than actual facts and evidence. I mean, these ladies, how could you get away with it? The evidence was there. They admitted it, Mm -hmm. but then they were just absolutely celebrated in the media. When Pamela Anderson's quote comes back to me talking about how that all that attention, it, it, it is still relevant. And they were massive narcissists. Oh, yeah. These women were massive, massive narcissists. I don't know how all our listeners feel about it, but I have followed the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial that has just concluded when mm-hmm. we're recording this uh, fairly recently. And it was, to me, in my opinion, with everything I have watched, another example of a massive narcissist who thought that they could just say whatever and they would get away with it. But in the in the case that makes me so fascinated is it for once it didn't work. Mm. It did not work because there was too much evidence to the contrary. And for once, I don't know if it's because we're more educated, we know more about narcissism, but this beautiful woman was able to be seen for what she was. And that's not something that usually occurs. I have not followed that case very closely. Mm-hmm. So if this is off base, then you guys just take it with a grain of salt. Right. But what I wonder is, did she lose or was she seen in the light that you described because the other person had so much publicity and positive media attention that's been brought up a lot too and i believe it is because they have her on they have audio tapes of her they have videotapes of her actually saying yeah i hit you Mm -hmm. tell the world that you were abused nobody's gonna believe you they have her saying it yeah and she's tried to twist it and say oh no you just didn't hear the other parts that were edited out well they've they submitted the whole recordings they have her i mean like beulah it is she is saying i did it what of it what are you gonna do about it 
And this time the evidence. And this time the held. evidence yeah. yeah, actually held. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk during our second part because we're going to get to pull all these pieces together. Yes. And, and well, now that we've laid this great foundation of what happened behind the scenes, the true Beulah Annan and Belver Gartner stories, I think part two is going to be even more fascinating because we're going to get to yes what did maureen do with all of this information what did she do with her rage how did she channel (laughs) that rage and i i approve of how she channeled it awesome so who are we going to cheers today ashley well i'm certainly not cheersing the two women murderers i'm not cheersing the men who supported them unjustly no so you know what i'm just i'm just skipping to the future and i'm gonna say maureen this one's for you because i know what's coming (laughs) so cheers to you maureen cheers If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.